My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. So as spring energy is really beginning to be felt, I thought in this practical thread, I would talk a little bit more about how I set up my seed sowing and come into a project that I left on the other side of winter and now have both the energy and hopefully the time to come back to, which is the construction of a little herb wall outside the cottage, and I thought I'd talk through a little bit of how I approach that. So sowing seeds for the garden for production is something that a lot of people will be doing, and I just really have some very simple tips of things that help make that efficient in a very practical way. So I'll start with the equipment I use. I am not very fond of plastic particularly throwaway plastic that's single use. But if I use plastic, I like it to be durable and, and sturdy. Why do I not like plastic? You know, there's so many reasons in terms of waste, but I also don't really like the feel and sensation of plastic. I never have. I like to eat, if I can, out of a wooden bowl with a wooden spoon like the ones I'm making. So anyway, I concede to plastic in certain areas where it has been very useful. There are alternatives, and I have tried some of them, where you can make your own little plant pots and module dividers out of all sorts of things, especially cardboard, newspaper, and so on. But for the volume of seeds that I'm trying to sow, I've found the solid modules that have a nice finger-sized hole in the bottom of them where you have about 77 or if you want them smaller, like 92 individual little module holes and they have different depths. There's a kind of about an inch and a half depth and then there's a couple that are two to three inches deep. Depending on the seed you're going to sow in them, it is about how deep you want the seed to be sown. So I'm just going to get into a little more detail on that. The depth of those modules is all about the depth of the root system that will be needed just to sustain the little seeds until you transplant them. So the smaller the seed and the plant that's going to be in there, the smaller the depth of the module needs to be. So usually that's a pretty good guide. If it's a tiny seed, then that small inch deep 77 module is pretty good. You can even go smaller again with the 92s 
And then the really deep ones I use for things like peas and beans, like broad beans at the moment, because they're going to create quite a lot of root quite quickly. and They need a bit more depth. And the depth that I'm planting the seed is going to be just, just under the surface so that whatever size of seed it is, that it's, it's just gently, gently coated with either the teeniest little lump of seed compost or a, a slightly bigger amount. If it's a pea or bean, you just put it below the surface. So that's the first bit of equipment are these sturdy trays. Then a word about the seed compost. As I've mentioned before, I think you can make your own seed compost made of a medium that won't have other weed seeds in it. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard to distinguish your seed that you're trying to get come up and you're going to give nutrients to all these other little weed seeds. So I, I buy a compost for that. I don't make a, a seed compost and I've experimented with, I do make various versions of potting compost and I've experimented with those with the wormery and quire, which is coconut husks. But what I do is I buy a no peat seed compost from Fruit Hill Farm. It's an organic seed compost anyway. So what I do is I set myself up then with, I've got my seeds, I've got my labels. And again, there's a question about whether what the material the labels are made out of. You can have labels that are made of plastic. If it's a hard plastic, I'm going to talk about how you can reuse those. You can have labels that are made out of sort of thin metal, like an aluminium label. They, you can get those in quite big sizes and they're very reusable. And then the other one that are not as reusable, but they biodegrade is lollipop sticks. And if they're in a medium and they're not too wet and you can sometimes reuse them, but they'll often get quite rotty. So depending on what it is, I, where I want the label to go at the end of the seed sowing process, I choose different ones. So if I just want to have a reference point to what is in the tray, and I don't intend taking that label and adding it to the plant directly in the soil to keep an eye on it in the soil. Then I use the lollipop sticks because that you know you can cut them in half as well, and they they'll just give give you an indication of what you've planted in the tray and the date you planted it, which is good. If you want, like I might be growing different kinds of tomatoes, for example, and once I put a few of those out into the ground, I'd quite like to know which one they are until you know right up until fruiting so as that i might then save the seed of those tomatoes because they're very easy to save seed from so then i want a kind of bigger either one of those bigger metal labels or a bigger plastic label tend to use the biggest size metal labels for the squash and pumpkin family or courgettes and again particularly if i want to remember what kind of plant it is and keep it as a seed or just know when I've harvested it. If I'm trying something new, I want a good label in the ground that'll last all year until it's harvest time. And then I can go, ah, this is a decent bean or a really nice squash. And then I'll keep a record of that. So labeling, really an important part of the process, something I didn't learn until much later as a gardener, how useful it is to get labeling and put the effort into labeling. So how do I reuse the plastic and the metal ones? I use a dark pencil, so a 
builder's pencil. You can get those in a hardware shop or anything more than a 2B, 3B, 5B pencil. So it's got a kind of softish lead. And then on the plastic labels, they usually have one rough side that's very easy to write with in pencil. And on the, on the metal labels, you can just write away on the metal labels. And in both instances, if you do it in pencil, you can just uh, wash that or rub that off. If you've got labels that you've got for years and you've had them in pen, I, I would only really use pen on labels I intend to probably throw away. So sometimes I cut up butter tubs or yogurt tubs, really, be the ones I might have and make labels out of those. And then I might write in pen on those and I may not keep them. But the ones, if I've bought a sort of sturdy plastic label, I'll always use pencil in those. And if somebody else has used pen on them, because I do have a lot of volunteers and people on courses that learn somebody might have taken a pen out of the box instead of a pencil, you can just take it off with a little light sandpaper and then you get that slightly rough surface again. So then I have my labels, I have my pencils, I have my seed compost and I have my tray. So then I have a table or a bench. It's great if you're if you're planning to do this standing. It's great if that's a high enough bench that you're not bending over it. A bit like a good size counter in a kitchen or a sink. You want to have it so that it's it's fixed for your height. So you can always put a couple of blocks of wood on uh, on something, bring it up a bit higher. I often use to save. If it's not a smooth surface and easy to, for me to sweep and gather excess seed compost from it, I sometimes use a cardboard box that's just the right size for my seed trays so that any compost that falls through is very easy to gather. But you can do that on a flat surface as well. So I set those up. And I also, one more bit of equipment is a watering can with a small rose head for the water to come out, not as a big gush and just wash all the seeds and compost back out of the tray. I have that filled with water. So I scoop up lots of the seed compost and I put it all over the tray and I use my hand to distribute it across the tray. Then I lift the tray and drop it again and the seed compost will drop down and settle into it more and you'll see where you've missed. And you take more handfuls. I usually do that at least twice pat it down, and then I water it. And after I've watered it, I, I drop it again. I usually set it onto a empty vegetable bed when I'm watering it, just so as the water goes through into the bed and it doesn't make a mess of the table and you're working more there with the dryer compost, so it's just handy. And I tap it again, and then I, I know that my whole module is absolutely nicely filled and that there's good amount of compost going to be below my little seedlings. And then if it's a tiny seed, all I do is make a tiny dip with my finger. I don't push it down and make a hole. It's literally like a little indentation so that when I drop the seed in, it'll kind of roll into my little indentation. Make sure that now to open up, before I open up the packets, I pull out my labels and I label each row in the tray as what it's going to be. So sometimes I'm sewing a whole tray of one thing. Other times I'm sewing two or three rows at a time and I just put the label marker to one side of those rows so as I know the two to the left, say, are that thing. And so I write the label, I put the date on it. Date's really good because it lets you know whether or not something has germinated. So if you 
see a tray you've sowed and it's four weeks later and nothing's come up, you've had a problem with viable seed. And so you can you can keep an eye on the date. So I put all the labels in and only then do I open up the packet. And you can either sprinkle the seeds out onto your palm of one hand and then carefully lift and drop. I did learn another little trick from Joy Larkham, who's a wonderful writer and grower who's traveled the world bringing us plants we didn't have before, especially interesting salads and from both Southern Europe in one of her trips and later in China. And so the reason we eat wonderful for salads is is down to Joy Larkham. And so she has a little technique where she uses a broken bit of glass, like a small broken bit of glass. She puts a bit of tape around one end of it. So she has one end of it that's got a point. And she has a saucer, two saucers, one with seeds that she sprinkles out into them and one with just a tiny puddle of water. And I, I did this recently. I didn't bother with the saucers. I just used the tabletop. But you touch off the water and then touch off a seed and it picks up one for you. And then you set it onto the dip in the module and the seed comes off. And you can it can speed up seed sowing quite a lot, especially for really tiny seeds. And then all I do with my finger again is I just sort of brush the edges of my dip so that that little seed is covered just marginally. And then that's that. And at that point, I set it wherever it's going to sit in good light. I use a lot of the empty beds if they haven't got anything growing in them in the greenhouse to set them there. And then I've got to keep an eye that I keep it gently moist. So I don't want to overwater the seed tray and have it absolutely saturated. That will tend to create bad conditions and sometimes kind of greeny mold on the surface of your seed trays. Because if this tiny seed sends out its shoot and root, it's very vulnerable to drying out and then so it's actually kicked off its life cycle and then done that energy bit and if you don't keep it moist it will it can dry out completely and die so you might not know why things have not germinated but it could be excess moisture or it could be not enough moisture think of seedlings at this stage as being like tiny newborns and you have to give them that amount of attention until you see two seed leaves that come out of the seed and you still need to water, but they're a little less vulnerable at that point to drying out than they are at the very earliest stage of germination. So that's my seed setup. I also keep a book and a record of what I'm sowing so that I have an idea. Or if I don't do that, I mean, that's the intention, but if I don't do that, I will regularly walk around looking at the trays going, okay, yeah, and I've got several trays full of salads going and I have my broad beans going, and I have my early winter keef peas going, and what else I'm starting with the chards and the beetroots and so on. It's kind of knowing what it is. And there's some really good calendars as to what to sow when. Also put some links to that again in the in the listen notes. And you can always re-sow many things. So it's quite good. You know, I actually recently had, there's mice in the greenhouse, and so I sowed, I had a, a whole, at the bottom of my pea tin, I had all these mixed peas from different packets. And so they would have been different types of peas and different probably heights of growing. So I sowed one small tray of them and 
put them in the glass house as sacrificial peas to see if there was, if the mice were still about and if they were going to come and disturb. And, and sure enough, I could see the evidence of little digging. And so I've, I've now set up more of a covered, I use, I have some perspex that somebody donated to us. And so I've put um, perspex over any of the pea and bean trays until they germinate. And then I'll probably have to move them. And I'll have to hope that the mice have come out of hibernation and moved off into other habitats than my greenhouse. The second project I wanted to talk about was a herb wall or a herb spiral or having somewhere where your herbs are very near your kitchen door of your house because they can be so useful, but also they're very pretty. So you might not, unless you grow a potager kind of style of garden where you really carefully and beautifully arrange your vegetable rows, you might not want to have that right in your front garden or your place that you like to sit. Although I quite like looking at my rows of vegetables if I would probably be fine with them in the front garden. But what a lot of people do need nearby and are also beautiful and are also wonderful for biodiversity, especially pollinators like bees and butterflies, is herb gardens. So, and so there are two ways I'm going to talk about that you can make herb gardens. And there are, I'm sure, many others. One is one we use a lot as a teaching tool in permaculture, and that is a herb spiral. And it's very easy to make. All you need for a herb spiral are a pile of rocks, which you can gather from wherever you can access rocks, and a pile of soil. And what you're really constructing is a kind of a, a mini mountain. And what's nice and why we use it as a teaching tool in permaculture is that it's useful to think about the conditions a particular plant wants when it is growing. And herbs all come from different parts of the world. I noticed a thread on a social media question recently about why Brazil wasn't growing well for someone who was sowing it last month. And there were lots of different questions and answers, but one of the things that I contributed was did you know where basil comes from? And most people would say they think it comes from a Mediterranean country because it's very associated with Mediterranean food. But in fact, basil comes from India. So if you know that about a plant, then you know the kind of heat conditions and protection that it's likely to need. And that's why basil doesn't grow well outdoors in Ireland. But for your herb spiral, when you have this mini mountain, so you make a kind of height in the center and drop down to lower you can position things like wild mountain thyme can be up at the top of your mini mountain where it doesn't need as much moisture, where it's exposed to the sun and so on. And you could put something like chives that are quite content in a bit more moisture and even could tolerate some shade down in the lower parts of your mountain. So that's why we use herb spirals as teaching tools. So all you do to make a herb spiral is gather whatever mound, and this can be of any size of soil you have, and you pile it up to look like the peak of a mountain. And then you start taking your stones, you start with the smallest ones first, and you start making a spiral from the beginning of the peak. And you can put a couple of stones, you could put a couple of, depending how rigid a wall you're trying to make, and this is just a stone wall without mortar, 
and you just position them as best you can and you come out around and round your mound of soil, getting bigger and bigger in stones and finishing off with a complete circle at the bottom of your biggest stones. And that's a herb spiral. And then you plant into that. You'll notice too that the bottom part of the spiral starts widening out. So you have bigger gaps. In the bottom of my herb spiral at the farm, I have oregano, I have chives. I think I probably have some fennel. And then further up, I'm into the thymes and several different varieties of thymes. And then you could have other more specialist herbs in there as well, like tarragon or summer savory or winter savory or it's a lovely salad burnet, parsleys that you might have to sow annually, you could put in there. Edible flowers, if you wanted to have some marigolds, you could put in calendula and borage plants from seed. So you get this lovely, attractive and useful. And the other thing I, I think is quite nice to put in at the top is some of the alpine strawberries. So you have just the little berries that again, don't like a lot of moisture and they're very pretty. So that's a herb spiral in a in that form. I'm working on a little herb wall that has a hollow in the middle and it's it's quite small and it's only about two or three courses of stones. So there'd be the roughly brick sized stones and some bricks because I have some old bricks mixed in to create a low wall with a hollow in the middle where I can put soil. I'm very amateur stone masonry work. I'm not, I have a friend who's a master of, of stonework and makes extremely exact and very polished walls. But because it's a cottage, the front part of the cottage anyway, I'm not worried about it looking higgledy-piggledy because that kind of is in keeping with the cottage. And so in this case, I am using mortars. And so you can experiment with little walls and even you could put a little wall around a bed as well. This is something you could use for, for garden beds, but I'm making this little hollow wall. And I'll put a few pictures of that up in the listen notes just to see what I'm talking about in a visual sense. What is handy to do is you can mix cement yourself. If you have the skill sets and you have the equipment, you can mix cement on a big board, different mortars or different ratios. And you can mix that up and you add in, you mix the, the two ingredients very, very well. You want well distributed. And then you add in some water. Some people will use a mortarizer, which helps it flows better as a medium. People put in a squirt of washing up liquid, apparently helps the same way. But one of the ways that I am doing this this time, because I have less time than I did the last time I started the wall, and we have a cement mixer and I have all this equipment. So I just want to do this in this time in an incremental way. When I have a couple of hours as the light in the evening comes, because I do a lot of the seed sowing, as I've mentioned, I'm working at that up at the farm on the weekends or in lunch times because I have a day job <laughs> that requires me not to do that as well. I, I'm not a full-time grower. And so I, I'm trying to find these these times when I can do something. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a pre-mixed cement mix. So it already, you buy it in a, in a bag and it already has the sand and cement in there. So all you do is take a small amount of it. So I could take just a bucket full at any one time, put the water in, and then I have a mortar. And what I'm using this for is very small amounts of mortar. 
I'm just using it to hold the wall together, and I'm still trying to use some of the dry stone wall principles where I don't need I don't need mortar everywhere, and I don't want the mortar that I am using to be particularly visible either. So I'm just using it in small quantities. It would be possible for me to do this with a lime mortar. It takes longer to set, so it's a little harder for amateurs <laughs> because I'm sometimes cheating a little with my cement setting quite quickly. I can get away with not having it face of my stones absolutely flush and things propped up with little sizing stones just to try to hold it together and then the cement will set quickly for me and then it kind of is grand to keep going. So what I'm doing is I start with a trench where the wall is going to go. My wall is only about two feet wide, maybe two and a half feet. So I dig out a trench to a depth of maybe nine inches it doesn't have to be as deep as that, but roughly that. And I get my biggest stones and position them in two rows opposite each other all the way along the trench. And then what I'm hoping is that if I've got a flat surface on one side, that's my face of the wall. And then it doesn't have to be a flat, it doesn't have to be like a brick or a breeze block or anything. It just has to have one pretty flat surface. And then I want to position that in the, my my soil, by the way, is quite sandy in the bottom, but you could put a row of gravel or sand in that trench because that can kind of help you position them evenly and flush with the front of the wall. So I do two rows down. I haven't used any mortar at this point. And anything that's kind of pointy, I have that to the center. So if you look down on the wall, you might see some interlocking points there's a term of a dog-faced stone is used sometimes by stonemasons where you have a, a, a sort of thicker top with a pointy bit coming out like the, the snout of a dog. So you try to intersperse those along and then I'll fill in the gaps with just uh, spacer stones, smaller, loose stones that I gather up and fill in the gaps. And then I'm ready to start doing the next course. And so what I would look for at that point to put along the, the wall is stones occasionally that cross from one of those rows to the other. So they would have to have a double face and they'd sit across that. Now, because I want to put soil in the bottom of mine, I don't want to fill up with too many filler stones. That's just sort of like the bottom of a plant pot. And I also don't want to have too many of these cross tying stones because then that will not leave me enough hollow in the middle for my soil. So on that course, I'm only going to do it on one course. And because I'm only coming up in the wall, not very high, like maximum three courses of these quite not huge stones, sort of brick-like size stones, the wall should be stable enough. If I was trying to build something much higher, then you have those tying stones and you'd need to do a little bit more engineering. But this at low is going to be plenty sturdy. So then once I, I start to have those stones sorted, I then need the stones that are going to come up, of course. And that's when I will open up some evenings, my bag of mixed, pre-mixed, ready-mixed cement, put some into a bucket, have it handy beside me, have my watering can handy beside me. And I fiddle and position, you know, however many stones I've got time for, because that's the fiddly bit, is getting them to sit nicely, propping them up sometimes with little spacer stones, 
then taking them out again once you're happy with how they're sitting and then putting in just little lumps of mortar to bed them down, tucking maybe a little bit between them. And then that'll be maybe four or five stones a night if I was working for an hour at the most. And I can leave that all set and that actually makes it easier to set the next ones. Then when you finish the course, you want another surface or another face that is flattish for capping the wall because you can have had maybe quite uneven stones except for that front face. And so you can cap it. So what I did with the last bit of section of it is I found a lot of round-ish flat stones and some shells and I just accumulated capping type stones and they're what sits along the top. And then you're ready once it's all set to fill in the gaps that you've left between the two rows with as much soil as you can pack in there, with as much fertility as you can pack in down the bottom, things that might rot away. And then you're ready to plant it up as a herb wall. So you could do a tiny herb wall or you could do a long herb wall, but they're really nice little projects to get familiar with building with stone. Thank you.